he made the toast and that's all of you. We all took a drink and Rich and I took it. Oh, that's quite nice. Actually put, put the glass down and he just looked at us. And in Russian, he said, when you're in Georgia, you drink to the bottom of the glass. This is Cold War Conversations. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I'm here to host this final program from the German Democratic Republic for you. Welcome to Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. We speak with Chris Summers, who, as a 20-year-old, was sent by his employers to East Germany in a Ford Escort to install British factory machinery. He provides us with interesting insights into life in the provinces of the GDR. Long-term listeners of the podcast will recognise one of Chris's colleagues was Tim, husband of Ancha, who was our guest in episode 82, A Cold War Romance. Chris was also sent to Poland, the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, where he tells us what he saw and experienced in the latter half of the 1980s. Now, if you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air, although larger amounts are welcome too. You get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for further information. And thanks to some of our latest patrons who include Alfie, Nicholas Butter, Roger Ackroyd, David Hansen, David Knight and David Roberts. I am delighted to welcome Chris Summers to our Cold War Conversation. I worked for a company called Detexamat, which was a small manufacturing company in High Wycombe, where I live. I was an apprentice engineer there for four or five years, and then I joined them as a service engineer. And all their equipment was exported, or 90% of it, which meant 90% of my time was traveling the world, fixing it, installing it, running training courses. And the equipment was really for closing the toes on pairs of tights or stockings, joining two legs together to make a pair of tights and then closing the toe so that the uh they were wearable and and was your technology pretty unique which is why the eastern Bloc bought into it yeah there were only three manufacturers in the world one in japan one in italy and ourselves in the uk the japanese machines were pretty much only used in the far east um and our equipment was recognized to be the simplest, the most effective, and probably most cost-effective throughout most of the rest of the world. Right. And with your your dealings with, with the Eastern Bloc, I understand that you, you first went to East Germany when you were age 22. What, what 
information were you given before you you traveled were you briefed at all as to what to expect no <laughs> we were given <laughs> almost no information whatsoever in fact my very first trip i was with a an older engineer older than me but he was new to the company so i was if you like the lead engineer um and we'd been working in west germany and as was the way then we get a phone call from someone saying can you go to East Germany, um, but we had arranged visas. It wasn't completely on spec, but we drove in through a place called Eisenach, which was the only place I ever entered East Germany, to be honest with you. And it was fairly daunting the first time because you crossed the West German border, which was almost nothing. They just waved you through. Look, And then about half a mile further along, you zigzag through some big concrete blocks, which I'm told at the time were... Um, but they could shoot them out to stop traffic if they needed to. Um, so they had those. And then you pulled up at the end of a conveyor belt of about 200 metres long and put your passport on it and sat in a queue. And by the time you got to the immigration officer, he'd had your passport for a while, made some phone calls because the, the, the visas were very specific. You had to have a reason to go there. So we had letters of introduction from the company we were visiting and uh, which, which was called ESDA. It was the only manufacturer of tights and stockings in East Germany. It was it was all over East Germany, but it was a state-owned business. And then when you you, know, you get asked lots of questions at the border control and why you're there, what you're bringing in, there were certain things you couldn't bring in and that sort of thing. And eventually you were let through. And then, to be honest with you, you were just on an autobahn and it didn't look much different from the West German side. Yeah, obviously it was different. I presume there were cameras watching people and that sort of thing. But the first time I went there was with chap Ron. We were going to a place called Auerbach. Bear in mind, in 1985, there was no mobile phones, sat-navs or anything. But it turns out there's two Auerbachs in East Germany, and we got to the wrong one at about 9 o'clock at night, and there's no hotels to go and knock on the door of. And it was January, and we ended up spending the night in our Ford Escort in about minus 20 degrees until the next morning when we found someone to ask and show an address to, and we realised we were in the wrong hour buck. How far away were you from the right one? We were probably about two hours' drive away. But to be honest, I guess it was just our ignorance. We just looked at a map, seen hour back, and headed to it, not appreciating there might be two villages of the same name. Uh, yeah, a bit like modern day sat nav use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that, that was my very first experience. And I guess the biggest thing I took from that was that um, our knowledge of German was almost non existent at the time. And it wasn't like West Germany where you could pull into a service station and ask the way. There weren't any. And we had to wait till the next day when we found, a, I think it was a corner shop or a shop to go in there with an address and try and ask them where it was and they we got the map out and they pointed out this other place which we then drove off to and they must have been quite mystified by two random british guys in a ford escort turning up in it was it quite a small village that you ended up in yes a very very small village yes um yeah to the point where i believe we, we stood out like a sore thumb quite frankly because first of all the the ford escort was like a rolls royce compared to um, the cars that were over there. So that stood out instantly. Wrong side of the car as far as they were concerned as well. And e- even our clothing. I 
as a 22 year old, I had no concept of what to expect. I hadn't given it much thought, to be honest with you. We just turned up and there we are walking around. I think I had a sheepskin coat at the time. My parents had bought me for a 21st birthday present. And I probably looked like Del Boy walking around East Germany <laughs> in this big sheepskin coat. But uh, yeah. That's a great line. Del Boy walking around Germany. I do. Yeah. We'll have to keep that one for the intro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but then we went, we went off to the, we found the real Auerbach, uh, the real one that we wanted. Uh, and again, no hotels. We were staying in what was known as a clubhouse. It was a factory, factory owned house, which was run by an elderly lady whose name, unfortunately, I've forgotten. It's a real shame because she was very nice. Um, and we basically had two bedrooms which were linked to each other. There were, I think there were four rooms in the house. Uh, you could eat breakfast in there, but everything else was there was nothing else available. And so we had these tiny little beds in very very basic rooms, perfectly clean and pleasant. But uh, yeah, I think there was a, a a one ring stove in in one of the rooms, so you could warm a pan of soup up or something. Right. So, so when you arrive there, you, you both of you, both Ron and and yourself, can't speak German. There were people there who could speak English at the factory, I presume. Yes, we were. We, we've been given a name. Um, his name actually, chap's name was Ollie Scheffner, and he presumably he, he was working in the factory, but presumably someone also relied upon by the party. Um, very pleasant guy to us, really, really helpful, spoke brilliant English. Um, and he was basically allocated to us for the entire duration of our visit. You know, if we needed something, we asked him. If we wanted to go somewhere, we ask him, um, you know, can we go to this place or that place? And, uh, yeah, so, so in our naivety, we, we just blindly followed what he said. I suspect, looking back now, he was probably not in the Stasi certainly reporting to them because it turns out that a lot of people were but yeah so he, he spoke excellent english because when we went out in the evening there were we, we had to go to a restaurant there was no option there's no other place to eat and there were about four local restaurants one in each of the nearby towns and we discovered they were sort of open on rotation they had something in Germany which I'd never heard of. I've now heard of it. It's called Ruertag, rest day. In England, of course, restaurants tend to be open seven days a week. In Germany, certainly in East Germany, they were not open seven days a week. So um, that took a bit of working out because um, you couldn't get a takeaway or anything like that. Um, so we go to a restaurant and fortunately, I'm not a fussy eater. I just pointed at the menu, see what turned up and remembered it for next time. So uh, on that trip, I think Ron and I were only there for a week, so it, it was not too difficult. But uh, yeah, no, that, that was an interesting one. And what were you there to do? Were you there to train people how to use your equipment? On, on the first on the first trip, we were there to install a machine. So uh, they just bought one machine. I think they probably bought it as a as a test, to be honest with you. Uh, and we were installing that in their main factory. The, the main factory was in this village of Auerbach. And so we, we installed the machine, obviously successfully, because they did go on to buy a lot more, which is when I returned the following year with Tim. And we were there for eight or nine weeks um, con- consecutively. So, yeah, we, we just spent the time in one factory 
on that first trip. Right. And and we've heard of Tim before because he features in our uh, previous episode of Cold War Romance and uh, we'll we'll talk about uh, about that in in a in a moment. How were you paid when you were over there? Were you paid in the local currency or or how did you buy food and well, and uh, yeah, that's a good question. We were we were paid our salary as normal by the English company, but the sales director from Detexamat, part of the contract he negotiated a 20 mark daily allowance, a 20 East mark daily allowance uh, for the factory to pay directly to us, which is obviously to their benefit because they had access to East marks. They'd had to buy the machines in, in Western currency. So they gave us every day 20 marks. I think they gave it to us a week in advance. And that, to be honest, was more than enough to go to a restaurant and have a, a perfectly decent meal and a couple of drinks. So we said, yeah get that 20 marks. But then if we, if we ran out, there was a black market for currency going on, which we very quickly learned about. Uh, people in the restaurant, some of the younger people were not quite so reserved. And you could change West marks at 10 to 1. So, you know, a daily allowance, we could get a daily allowance by changing two West marks on the black market. And we end up with 20 East marks. Wow. And how how were the locals to you? Because I guess they wouldn't have seen many English people in their town before. No, I mean, the, the people that we dealt with in, in the factories, on the whole, were fantastic. Really super friendly people, particularly the younger ones, anyone under the age of about 30. Um, some of the older people, particularly the men, because it tended to be the men with the mechanics in the factories who had our main dealings with them but it was normally ladies operating the equipment, as it was in most of the world. But uh, So the, the older guys were obviously quite wary of being seen talking to us. I think that was probably the main issue. But everyone was very friendly, very helpful. I, I don't remember having a single bad experience with the local people. They invited us eventually. We ended up going to a, a swimming pool party. They had an open-air swimming pool, big communal thing, and they had like a fete, I guess it was. Um, and we were invited to that. This chap, Ollie Sheffner, invited us uh, to go to that. No, the pe- people were just terrific. At, at any time, did you feel you were being watched or, or observed? I never felt it, except when we got if we got friendly with some of the, the the technicians in the factory. If we went out somewhere, if we went to a for a drink or met in a restaurant, you could feel that they were a bit wary of being seen. I mean, we were, particularly when I was back there with Tim, we were both 22 years old, you know, driving around East Germany in a car that everyone thought was a Rolls-Royce. It was a 1.3 LS call, but it, you know, to, to the local people, it was like a Rolls-Royce. And we were, we clearly stood out as some, we were different to everyone else around, as much as our clothes and maybe our, our attitude not 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 unruly attitude but we were two lively 22 year olds having a good time frankly and i think there were some people a bit nervous of that i can i can imagine that and were were you restricted as to where you could go to or were you just like giving your 20 marks and we'll see you tomorrow yeah but that, that was roughly it uh, i mean we weren't aware of any restrictions we probably broke quite a few rules but uh, we didn't know what the rules were so, um, no, we, we, we did go to quite a few different places. I mean, I went 
Karl Markstadt, a chemist's office, it's now called, had a, a hotel in the middle of it. I think it's called the Hotel Congress, uh, and it's a Western hotel, a hotel for Westerners, and they had a nightclub in the base of that. Um, and so we go up there occasionally at weekends um, and take people with us. Um, and it was a 20-mile drive. You know, so, so on occasion, it was it was difficult. In fact, I remember one time we actually booked a room because you were guaranteed to get in if you had a room key. Well, an- another engineer, and also called Tim, not the same Tim, I have to say, the two of us had gone up there and with two young ladies from the village we were staying in, and it was heavy snow, and I, I was driving, and we drove into Karl Marxstadt, about, about a 20-mile journey, I think. And uh, so when we arrived at the... Uh, the hotel I was showing off, being 22 years old, and I handbrake turned the car across into a, what turned out to be a taxi rank. And we got out of the car before we went into the nightclub, had a pretty good time. And then uh, someone from the hotel came and asked that our car, I said, you have to move it, you're in a taxi rank. So I went out to move the car and uh, removed it rap- moved it rapidly in reverse around the corner so, so it wasn't in the taxi rank, back into the nightclub. And when we came out of the nightclub, got in the car, and I instantly saw about 50 yards away um, a police car. And I said to this, the other engineer, Tim, I said, we're in trouble there. And uh, we had no option but to try and pull off. So we pulled off. As soon as I started the engine, got about two metres, and the siren started. And the two officers got out. It was so polite, I must say. And... Uh, they came round to my door and put the window down and he said to me in German, which I by now understood a little bit of, have you been drinking? And I said, certainly not. And he said, would you blow into his bag, please, sir? So I blew into the bag and, of course, it almost melted it. Um, and then, But he was very nervous. He said, oh, what do I do with this English guy if he's been drinking? You could see it on his face. He genuinely didn't want to arrest me because he didn't know what to do with me. And he said, is there anyone else in the car who can drive? And I, Tim was in the back, other Tim was in the back. I said, Tim, can you drive? Yeah, of course I can. And he said, have you been drinking? He said, no, only lemonade. And of course he blew in the bag and melted it as well. Um, and then there was a, a conversation. The girl in the front seat, um, a lady called Andrea, who was with me, and uh, she, she, she got out of the car and went and got sat in the police car and talked to them. And we had no clue what was going on. And then she she came, got back in the car, and said, have you got, guys got an English money on you? And between us, I think we had um, £30 in £10 notes. And so she said, give it to me, gave it to her. She got back in the police car. And uh, five minutes later, got back in our car and said, right, drive. And uh, we said, oh, what happened? What happened? She said, just drive. And so we, we drove off and, well, he said to me, drove home. And as we were five miles away from the hotel, she turned to me and gave me two £10 notes. And I turned to Tim, I, I hate to say it, I'm ashamed to say it, my only reaction was, wow, we can do that two more times. And then we drove back to where we were, and, and, and that was the end of it. So it, it was a, yeah, it's a... Humorous now, thirty-five years later, but uh, mildly embarrassing, I have to say, to, to have been so flippant 
with well, both drink driving and their rules and regulations. But it was clear at the time the chap just didn't know what to do with um, a couple of English guys. Um, if, if I'd been his German, I'd have probably been dragged away and locked up. Um, but he just didn't know what to do with it. So, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of any restrictions and no one ever stopped us going anywhere. But uh, I, I, I suspect we were probably going to places that they'd rather we hadn't, but we just didn't know. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, you know, from what you hear of East Germany, most tours or tourists were, you know, carefully shepherded a around and there wasn't that much independent tourism yet there's there's you two as you say young 22 year olds you're able to go anywhere and almost do anything as long as you're not breaking the 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 law it it's quite incredible yes uh, and again looking back now on 57 years old it absolutely was incredible when i tell people you know the, where we've been and what we've done everyone looks at me open eye but at the time I, I just don't think I had an appreciation of what um, a communist bloc country was I, I yes when I crossed the border that was quite formidable but once you were there the people were just lovely and we you know they'd they'd invite us to local discos and things like that um, and we go almost every week to a local disco which was quite a, a strange thing because being good socialists they had to be ready for work the next day and so a disco tends to be three o'clock till six o'clock in the afternoon um, wow. as, a, as opposed to eight o'clock till midnight so it, it, it was quite a yeah <laughs> you got used to it but yeah you, you would go to a disco literally at three o'clock on the sunday afternoon and normally it was one of the, the girls operating machines in the factory who'd invited us and invited as much as i think they wanted to be seen to be out with the two English lads. Um, yeah. it, it was nothing more than that. We'd arrive, or they'd arrive in our car, and uh, they'd in, oh, this is Chris, this is Tim, we, we, you know, we're here. But it was very, almost ch- childlike, if, if you like. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was good fun, but it was strange to go to a disco at three o'clock yeah. in the afternoon. Yeah, it was all quite innocent, I guess. Yeah, yeah. very much. Yeah, yeah. Did you get invited into people's houses as well? Yes, um, not not very often, but I yeah, at least three different occasions that I can think of, and all of them were quite experiences. Then I did I had a better appreciation of what was available and what wasn't in the stores, and on all three of them, the people hosting us had gone to extraordinary lengths to get food and drink that wasn't normally available. And I, I, I understood then really what lengths they'd gone to. And you've made you feel quite humble um, because they were eating it's things like strawberries that I hadn't seen anywhere at all. But in East Germany, they had something called an intershop. They had these in all these European countries, but they were called an intershop in East Germany, which anyone could go in, but you could only use West German marks in which is why there was a black market for the currency because people would save up enough West German marks to be able to go into one of these shops. And in there you could buy almost anything and you could order things. So you could buy a a radio cassette player at the time. Um, You could buy Western food 
you could buy cans of West German beer um, and Jack Daniels, things, things like this. But of course, it had cost them 10 times what it should have cost. And they were running the risk of getting caught changing currency. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a bit of an eye opener. What the the lengths, the hospitality that people would go to when we went there. And it only happened about three times, but it was, uh, yeah, quite an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And presumably when, when you got there, you had to, did you have to register with the local police or did the factory just take care of all of that? No, we had to go to a town called Stolberg and register at the police station. So, which was a, a half a day's visit, really. It's about a half an hour drive. And then you got battered from doorway to doorway because they, they, they weren't used to having people and the, the, the police didn't make it very easy. It didn't make it very difficult. It wasn't nasty, but it was a very slow process. Why are you here? Show them the contract, show them the letters, show them the visa. Yeah, it was a, you, 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 you had to register and you had to register when you left as well. You know, you, you were saying that a lot of the, the young people wanted to meet with you and speak with you and be, be seen around you. And presumably one, one of those was, was Ancha. Yes, yes. Um, so Tim met Ancha. So we were both there in 86 for about eight weeks and I had to leave to go and do a job in Italy. And when I came back, he'd met Antia. I hadn't met her. Uh, we hadn't met her together. Um, and Tim had met Antia. And she, she, she was a little bit different to most of the other people we met, or most of the other girls we met. She's very out, clearly, clearly outspoken, if you like, and didn't seem uh, at all afraid of speaking her mind or being seen with us. She, she appeared on to be very much more westernised than other people we've met, even though she'd never left the country. That she's more educated, um, more widely read, had maybe had more access to Western TV, because you, you could get Western TV if you turned the aerials around the right way, which people did do. Yeah, so she, but, and she, she, she was a little bit different, a real live wire. Oh, we're still friends now. I've, I've had her 50th birthday a few years ago. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yeah, no, hers hers is is an amazing story, and it's one of our uh, most popular episodes. There, when you were there with Tim, were you training or you were installing further equipment? We we were doing both. So we, we were installing equipment in about five or six different factories, all within a, a forty five minute drive. Um, and what we tended to do, we, we, we would get one machine up and running, and then. On the whole, I would train someone on that and Tim would move on to the next one. Um, and then when we finished the training, he and I would carry on 
with, with the second machine and just keep moving through. I can't remember how many machines. It was, it was like 22 machines and all. It, 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 it wasn't a, it's not a simple thing. It was a three-day job or so to get a machine installed and running. Um, and that's assuming there were no slip-ups because, of course, one thing about working in Eastern Europe is the access to spare parts was very limited, um, which have made them, um, they, they were very good at fixing things, thinking outside the box. Uh, so if something broke and they didn't have access to it, that they would find another way of doing it. So they had some very good engineers, very good technical people. Um, so, yeah, tra- tra- training them was not tremendously difficult. I was 22 years old. Most of these guys were 50, been engineers of some sort for years and years. Um, and it was just explaining how our particular piece of equipment functioned. Yeah. I guess if you've been fixing trabbies for the last uh... – 20 yeah. or 30 years then uh you 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 get to a, a reasonable degree of of engineering excellence um did you did you sometimes have you know one of your machines turns up and there was a bit missing yes. that somebody yeah. had to then make yes absolutely yeah I, I, I wouldn't say it happened often but it did happen uh or something was broken or didn't quite fit um because they, they weren't the sort of machines that you could pre-install in the factory in england then take them apart and then build them again in in the customer's side they were they were tested to check they, they they mechanically functioned but we'd never actually run run them in anger with um product on them in the, in the factory in england so uh yeah everyone was slightly different yeah yeah and and when you're training these these people presumably you have a translator Yes, there, there will be somebody with us. By this time, um, we had a different chap, actually, a guy called Dietrich Decker, or as everyone in Germany called him Decker Dietrich. Um, I, I, he was a fantastic guy. Again, probably a party member, I've no idea. But he was also very westernised in in his approach. And to us, he seemed very, very relaxed. He wouldn't let us go around to his house. He didn't want to be seen to be getting in our car. So... Could be like I said, some of these factories were forty-five minutes away, and he'd have to be with us in all the factories. But uh, and we we offered to pick him up on the way, and that that was crossing the line. Apparently, um, he couldn't be seen to be getting in our car. Uh, other than that, he he was a yeah. particularly nice guy. He was a semi-professional footballer as well. A bit older than us, he's probably thirty-five years old at the time. And I remember he invited us to go and play five-a-side football, indoor five-a-side football. Now, at the time, I was a very fit rugby player. Tim is about six foot four. Now, I, I, he's going to hate me saying that, but not the world's most coordinated person. So <laughs> the two of us on a, on a football pitch, I had no idea how to play football other than illegally, probably. But, uh, but they, the, the, these five older guys we were playing against, the, the, it like we felt like we were playing against Pele. They're just fantastic. I mean, really, really talented sports people. And they, you know, in that sort of thing, they're very sociable. We, we played it. We all had a beer together afterwards uh, and then all went our separate ways. Um, so we're allowed to do that, but we weren't allowed to give them a lift. Right. And were you able to talk to them ab- about life in England or, or anything like that? Or did that was that just frowned upon talking about that? No, the, people would ask questions and we'd happily give them would happily talk to them, but I think it was very difficult for them to comprehend. You, you couldn't explain going to a supermarket 
because they had no concept of what a supermarket was. The only shops we ever saw there were what I call small village co-op, little little shops with very limited items on the shelves. Um, You couldn't have explained the concept of a a Tesco's or, uh, you know, that that, that sort of thing. Um, Yes, we we also had, went out to discos, both countries have got football clubs and things like that. So, you know, in some ways, it was hard to define a difference as me going there. The biggest difference was, of course, I could just drive out and they couldn't, which I think was probably about the toughest thing for people who live there. It was just this concept that you were not allowed to leave. I'm sure if they'd been allowed to leave, many of them would have just come back. So they'd have been, so it's not that different. Then just go home to where we live. Um, so, yeah, but the, the, we never felt restricted on what we could say to people. And and did they talk much about their own lives and you know what what they did in their spare time and 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 things like that? Yes, uh, but it was all normal things. You say, well, what, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm I'm playing football, or you know, I'm going to the swimming pool, or I'm going to see my grandmother in the next village. Um, everyone was doing very normal things, but it was all very parochial, I guess. They weren't going far to do these things. But it, yeah, it just felt like a very normal conversation to, to us. It's a, there seemed to be a, a very active social life for younger people. I must say, very active. There were lots of local football teams, and everyone went to watch the matches. And they they all had a bar there, and they were selling hot dogs of some description. Um, it it felt quite normal, if I'm honest. Yeah, I think people forget sort of like 1980s UK, uh, there were only three or four TV channels and, yes. you know, that, it was pretty similar. You know, you, you you know, there wasn't this multi-channel entertainment systems um, and, you know, that that would be what you did. You play sport, you go out with your mates and, you know, yeah. you'd have, you drink beer. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe one thing to brought at home a little bit, because I, I as I say, January, February, and probably into March in 86, and uh, being no mobile phones or anything like that. And the only way I could phone home, and home with phone my parents, really, was in this clubhouse we were staying in. We had to book a phone call. Um, and it was, you know, I said, once a fortnight or so, I'd book a phone call. And I phoned up once I spoke to my dad. And he said, oh, you're all right, Chris? I said, yeah, fine, right. Um, well, Chernobyl had gone off, and we didn't know. Right. It hadn't. It was not in any way on the news. Um, not that I would have understood it anyway. But no one at all had told us that there had been a nuclear explosion in Chernobyl, um, and I don't think any of the locals knew. Um, so yeah, that that sort of made made you realise that there was obviously this. Uh, they could just block the news, and you and you didn't know what you didn't know. Um, but of course, it was all over the news in the UK. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, and could uh, you, you? The locals could pick up West German TV, though, couldn't they? They could. Yes, yeah. so I'm told. I mean, probably Auntie who told me actually that they if they all turned their antenna in a certain direction, they could pick up West German TV. But apparently, occasionally, the state would get upset and make them all turn them back. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's Auntie who told me that. But uh, that, yeah, they, they could pick up West German television. But I yeah. think a lot, a lot of them felt that the West German television, or they were told, 
you, you can ignore it. It's just propaganda. They know you're watching it. They're just deliberately telling you things which aren't true. Um, so the, 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 I'm not sure how many of them believed what was on West German news because they were told that the West German news was basically aimed at them as propaganda. Um, look how fantastic the West is and how bad the East is. Um, but uh, as I say, that's just hearsay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and when did Tim sort of tell you about his intentions, let's say? It was fairly clear by the time we both left East Germany together that, that time, he was besotted. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're very close friends and we still live within about two miles of each other. Um, and he he constantly went back to East Germany at every opportunity, either through work, or every job that then came up in East Germany, he put his hand up for. And also he came back on holiday, even when I remember he, he didn't stay at the text map as long as I did. And then he, he was coming back after that. I remember he drove out once and he had an old giant Spitfire, um, which he'd rebuilt. And he, he drove, he drove out in that one time, which must've been quite a trick. Yeah. Nice, play. nice car. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Nice car. And he's 20 years earlier, probably. But uh, I think the main thing about it was he, he, he took Andrew up sure He took her a watch and he, you weren't allowed to, and he'd hidden it in the air filter or something, um, or behind the dashboard. You could have Spitfire, you could just dismantle. And so he, yeah, so that, that I, I do remember him. Yeah, I, I think it was a watch he'd, he'd hidden behind the dashboard or something when he drove back over. Yeah, no, he, he, he was, he was clearly besotted from the, the day he met her. Um, so yeah, he, he went back on many occasions. And I remember him, him arranging, I haven't listened to Andrew's podcast, so I remember him arranging for his whole family to go over there. Um, to meet her family and then for the wedding and that sort of thing. Um, and to, yes, Tim, Tim's, Tim family's quite forward going. Um, it's two brothers and a sister. Um, so I imagine, I imagine that they absolutely enjoyed themselves. And uh, you know, I, I, but I, I listened to Andy's podcast. It was quite interesting that her parents were obviously terrified, which I hadn't understood at the time. Um, but uh, listen to it now. That that was very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it was a really entertaining chat I had with with yeah. Ancher. It's it's one of my favourite um, ep- episodes. That did you work elsewhere in East Germany, or was that your your main sort of uh, area of of working in? Oh, in, in East Germany, that that's really the, the main area. So there were four or five factories. Um, around uh, in Tum in Stolberg, um, and a few other places. But yeah, so what had happened, I, I learned later. Basically, the state took over existing hosiery factories, and uh, they just continued them as hosiery factories, but brought them all under the umbrella of this company, Esda. Because uh, I also worked in West Germany and from some privately owned hosiery factories. And one of them, I was working at a chap called Hoffman. He, his parents had owned the factory in Stolberg uh, before the war went up. And so, yes, I, whether whether he got it back, I don't know. But that that's what um, but that's what had happened. His, his family had left left the factory and started another one in West Germany. And have have you ever um, asked for your Stasi file? I haven't. And funny enough, I hadn't even thought of it until I heard your your other podcast. I would I would love to see. It. I, I don't know. I wouldn't know where to begin looking for it, Ian. But I would love to see it. 
Well, I will give you some pointers because I think it would be really interesting for you. Yeah, no, thank you. That'd be fantastic. Um, I understand you worked elsewhere in the Eastern Bloc as well. I did. Yeah, well, I, um, I spent a lot of time in Poland, which I love Poland, the Polish people, some of the friendliest people I've ever come across. Again, it was a state-owned company called Phoenix, and we, we sold a lot of equipment there, and I spent a long time on and off installing equipment, running training courses. Training courses were quite challenging in Poland because people would people like to drink quite a lot, and it was clear when they got there at 9 o'clock in the morning that they probably had a vodka or three for breakfast because there was no there was no motivation for them. They were guaranteed a job; they couldn't be sacked, and, and that that was that was quite difficult. It was that was different to East Germany. East German people, I always felt, were much more motivated. That they were to me, East Germany was much more westernized than Poland was. The, the, the Polish factories were just huge, massive things with thousands of people doing the job that in the UK, a factory would have had 300 in Poland, they had 2,000, um, just because they had to have employment. Um, but again, the, the people were lovely, ab- absolutely fantastic. They had, I, st- I was working in a town called Łódź, which was spelled L-O-D-Z, and as soon as I realised that L-O-D-Z was pronounced Łódź, I gave up all pretense of ever trying to learn the language. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, it was a uh, it, it was quite an experience. I, just, I traveled around quite a lot in Poland and did some exhibitions selling equipment also. But I think perhaps my most interesting visit was uh, in, in Russia, and it was at uh, I can't remember which year it was. It was eighty six or eighty seven, and um, we had an exhibition in Moscow, um, and I was an engineer. At the time, I did move on to sales, but I, I was an engineer at the time, and I'd never been to Russia before. And that that, that I found more nerve-wracking, fly, flying into Moscow. Um, and I was by myself, so I was probably still only 23 years old or something. Fly into Moscow and then take a taxi you know, to a hotel. I had a hotel booking, basically with the Mezduna Rodnaya, which was, at the time, the only big Western hotel in, in Moscow. And I got there, got my room, and then the next day I had to go to the the exhibition site to start building the stand and putting the equipment together. Um, and I hadn't appreciated that a summer in Moscow is very, very hot. I mean, 35 degrees hot. It was absolutely scorching. And when you get to these exhibition sites, you have to basically pay a forklift driver to get your equipment out before everyone else's. Cause there's hundreds of people trying to do it. And that was when I, mm. that was when I learned the true value of raw pantyhose because it was, uh, <laughs> a, ba- a bag of stuff which you would throw in the bin here because it was no use to man or beast because it hadn't been processed and it's just white a white tube um well the forklift drivers loved it and i was first for everything uh and they remember me when we came to take the stand down as well so that was fantastic but the so after we built the stand so my sales director and our agent for the soviet union who was a a uk company came out and uh the very first time he started the, the machines up, the stand got basically invaded by people trying to rip the pantos off the machines. And the the whole security came along and said, well, this is just too dangerous. We need to put barriers up around the stand to stop people coming on. And you'll have to invite people in uh, when you see someone you know. 
of course, that was very difficult because it wasn't like the CEO of a factory would turn up in a shirt and tie and a briefcase. Most people were dressed pretty similarly, frankly. And uh, it turned out that one of us, we don't, we'd never know who it was, had sent away the Minister for Light Industry with a plastic bag with some brochures in it. The most important person we could possibly have seen, a lady. Um, and we'd sent, we just, someone had, and it could have been me, it could have been my boss, we just handed a plastic bag with some brochures over this barrier and sent her on her way. Now, it didn't seem to do us too much harm because we ended up getting the biggest order the company had ever had for know, 50 machines or 60 machines. And it was, I'm told, it was to do with the fact that it was one of the five-year plans, and it was when Mr. Gorbachev was in power, and Mrs. Gorbachev decided there should be more pantyhose in the shops. And I'm told it was as simple as that. So we produced these machines five a month or six a month um, and shipped them out o- over time. And, of course, they, they, they were sent to all sorts of different towns and republics right across the Soviet Union. And I got sent out to go and run a training course, and I was running it in Kaunas um, in, in Lithuania and in a classroom with probably 40 people in it. And I had this young chap, Richard, from our agent. He spoke fluent Russian, English guy that spoke fluent Russian. There was an interpreter, and uh, we were just generally talking to people. And again, hugely humbling. Some of these people have spent three days travelling on a train to come to this training course. To, to listen to me explain how you make this sewing machine function and how you adjust this and how you adjust that. Um, it, absolutely staggering. Um, and then when I, I remember, I, was, I think it was a Sunday, a break in the training course, I was walking around the town and I, I saw three of the guys on the course and they were from Georgia, particularly friendly people from Georgia, I must say. And uh, they saw in Russian, with no, I don't know Russian, but between us, we managed to work out they wanted me to go for lunch with them. And we went to a restaurant. I think they found a Georgian restaurant in Gaunas. And uh, they just ordered some food and a bottle of vodka. And it was probably a half a bottle of vodka between four of us. Oh, fantastic. I, you know, I feel a bit safer now. So anyway, that one went, and then they ordered the second one. And then they ordered the third one. And then they went to order another one. I said, no, no, I've got to go. I've <laughs> Yeah, I need to escape here. And there's no, 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 four people, four bottles. So we had a, we had another bottle. Um, and we had the training course, and then went back to Moscow. And I then went. I, I my boss was in Moscow, and he managed to get a travel permit, effectively, for me to go to six different republics to go and look at some of this equipment. Um, the idea was to follow up the training to check it was installed correctly. Uh, and this sort of thing. Um, so I went first of all to the Ukraine, and almost everywhere I went, the machines were sitting there in the factory, not working. And it turned out the reason they weren't working is because they had no raw materials. So despite the fact that they, the five-year plan had spent quite a few million pounds buying equipment, they just didn't have the nylon to to work the machines. And that, I think, in Almost every factory I went to was a case. I think one factory, they had five machines and they had three coils of yarn to go in the sewing machine. Each sewing machine took three coils of yarn. And we had to use the same three on each machine just to check that they, they functioned. And I was there for an hour and I had a two-day trip planned. Um, 
But the hospitality, again, just staggering. Um, we got back to Georgia, and these same three chaps would take us out for an evening meal. Um, and this time they brought a much older guy. He's obviously he's clearly the party man. And they took us out to a restaurant, and uh, they said, uh, what do you like to drink? you like to drink vodka or wine? And I said to Richard, Richard's a year younger than me, um, and much more slightly built than me. And I said, Richard, we'll have the wine. I think mean, I've drunk vodka with these blokes before. <laughs> and so we said we have some wine and they put a, a bottle of white and a bottle of red next to all of us and they, so the wine was being served in classic old-fashioned pub wine glasses these sort of rounded things and uh they poured them out and so this old chap starts making a toast and he i can't remember what he was drinking to now but he basically we he made the toast and that's for all of you we all took a drink and rich and i took it oh that's quite nice actually put put the glass down and he just looked at us, and in Russian, he said, when you're in Georgia, you drink to the bottom of the glass. I said, oh, God. <laughs> so every time he made a toast, we had to completely drink a, uh, a glass of wine. And they got to the stage, obviously been there quite a long time. And I said, then the, I said, well, Richard, I think we should make a toast now, just to thank them and close this off. And I turned around, because he had to interpret what I was saying, and he'd almost collapsed on the floor. And I said, just... Just translate this and we'll go. Um, and it, it was a lovely evening. And we were going on a train station because um, we were going to Kazakhstan overnight on a, on a train. And they took us to the railway station, poured us onto the train, and they gave us uh, a bottle of cognac for the journey, <laughs> which never got opened. <laughs> we were on what was supposed to be a 12-hour train journey the next day. It turned into nearer 24 hours because apparently it had parked up in the night due to some reason we never learned. And when we woke up in the morning, we were still static. Um, so, so that was quite interesting. But from there, so we went. Wow. Yeah, we went to Kazakhstan. We went to Kyrgyzstan. Uh, just time went to Frunza. Yeah, we ended up six time zones away from Moscow. Uh, so it was quite an experience for. Wow. It must have been really interesting seeing parts of the Soviet Union that people, you know, regular tourists wouldn't have seen. Because uh, you were well off the beaten track. I think some of these places, we were, if not the first, amongst the first Westerners ever to go to them. Um, because apparently they nearly withdrew our travel permit. They panicked at the last minute. Someone had signed a travel permit allowing us to go to these six different republics. And then somebody, maybe one step ahead of them, said, what on earth are you doing letting these two 20-something Englishmen travel and they, they, apparently they nearly withdrew them and in the end they, in the end they let us go yeah it was very strange because i i'm, I'm convinced in, in in some of them we were the first people the first english people ever to turn up in you know you turn up in frunza which if you look at a map it's a long long way away um i don't believe an englishman never been there before was, um yeah so no it, it was yeah that, that was a real experience i must say fa- fascinating experience and did you take many photos on those trips or not? Yes, um, but of course, at the time, there were no digital photographs. Uh, um, and I, I have got photographs around of Richard and I in in, in some of these places, yes. I, I do have some, yeah. Um, right. It, I mean, if you could share a few with me, it would really help the show notes and give people a, a bit of an image as to you know what life was like and if you've got any in East Germany as well. I know the listeners will be really interested to um, 
to see more of this. Was your freedom of movement in the Soviet Union similar to East Germany or were you more restricted? Much more restricted, uh, I, I believe. And I, I, that sounds like an odd thing to say. When we're in Moscow, you could walk wherever you wanted to. Um, but when we were out looking at these machines that are being delivered, there were lots of them we were not allowed to go to because they were in um, factories that were in a military-sensitive zone. So we weren't allowed to go and visit uh, probably half the machines I didn't get to see because they're just in zones that Westerners were not allowed in. You, you know, you mentioned the the difference between the workers in East Germany and Poland, and I, re- I realise it's a you know generalisation. How, how did you find the, the workforce in the Soviet Union? In the, 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 the different... Republics were very much different people, to be honest with you, which I suppose they, they should be. In the, the big factory in Moscow we were in, you very much had the feeling it was all a bit downtrodden. And the staff canteen, for want of a better word, it was as you would expect in your imagination on a film. Everything was all very grey. The soup was very grey. You never knew what was in it sort of thing. And it, and it really was like that. The Baltic states, and we went to all three of them, were very much more, very much Scandinavian, I have to say. Um, it, it was a much more open feeling. Perhaps my favourite, Georgia, in Tbilisi. You could have been almost anywhere in the world. Big fruit shops, uh, lots of colour, very lively people, slightly different people in as much as they're darker skinned than the people in Moscow. They're clearly from a different country, if you like. And they were much more appeared, much more open, much more affable. Yeah, further across it, Fundra, I don't have a huge memory of, I must admit. It was all I, all I remember. More heavy-duty vodka-fueled lunches, was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I remember going to, I remember going to a park. We had, we had some time, a, a big open park, and it was just full of Leninist statues. And then we went, so we went, to, a, we went to a cinema. We saw a sign saying, Queen at the cinema and it was queen as in the band and they played apparently in budapest and because they played in budapest this is allowed to be in the cinema in funda and whether no one else understood what it was about i don't know because so rich and i went sat into a completely full cinema and with about 15 minutes of the concert starting most people left whether they thought they were coming to watch the queen or something (laughs) I, i i just don't know but it was a completely full cinema and literally, three quarters of people got up and left when they realised it was just this weird band playing music. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's that a great is, story. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. so that, 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 that was quite interesting. But on the whole, again, p- people super friendly, uh, I, I must say. Yeah, they, they obviously had different limits. They're, 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 some people were a bit more nervous. Other, other people, I remember we went to, to one chap's house. He invited us for, for lunch. And uh, so we finished work in the factory and we went to his, he comes out for lunch and we turned up and he, he got some bread and cheese and things out. It was very pleasant. And his wife came in and started shouting at him and we had no clue what, what they were saying. It turns out she was just livid that he hadn't pre-warned her and she took all the bread and cheese away and we had to wait for an hour while she cooked a three-course meal. She just didn't <laughs> want these Westerners in her house thinking that, uh, that she couldn't provide a decent three-course meal. But uh, no, it was 
it was super i must say yeah i understand you also worked in uh, czechoslovakia how 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 was that um at the time so it, it, it was still czechoslovakia compared to it was it was the most relaxed i i felt it was the most relaxed of the east europe east european countries i've been to it didn't feel like an east european country to me uh, compared to poland russia and east germany um Never much of thought about it because you, you you drove you crossed the border much more easily than you did when you went to East Germany or Russia or even Poland. Yes, I, I, it never felt to me particularly like a, an Eastern European country. It just felt like a you know a different state of Germany. Frankly, it, it was like going from West Germany to Czechoslovakia. It didn't feel much different in terms of the restaurants you could go to and and that sort of thing. Um, it just just felt open. yeah. The only other place I went to was was former Yugoslavia, and at the time when I went there, I mean that that, that there was it felt to me like there was almost no border. It, it was uh, completely open compared to the rest of uh, East, Eastern Europe. You, you could go to a shop and buy Adidas trainers. They're probably fakes. I don't know, but they they had Adidas on them, which you'd never see anywhere else in any other Eastern European country. But uh, yeah. That, that, that was, I think a lot of East Europeans went there on holiday. Actually, I might, I might be mistaken, but I believe it was a, a luxury holiday destination for the East Germans or the people like that. Yeah, I think it was more difficult for East Germans to go there because I think they were worried about people hopping across the border into Italy. Right, um, okay. but I think people from Hungary uh, might have been able to uh, holiday there. So. Uh, with Tim's wedding, I'm presuming you you weren't invited, but you knew that Ansha was going to be coming over the uh, the border and into the UK. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't, yes, I just I don't think it was Tim and Ansha not invited. I think it was just too difficult to get too many people going there. But uh, no, I, I I do remember. I, I do. I I was sort of waiting for them when they got back to the UK. Their their flat in Trink. So I, I was there when she first turned up, just about, I think. But, uh, wow. yeah, I, so I, I knew he'd gone for the wedding and I knew he'd left. Uh, and, of course, <laughs> as she clearly said, by the time she got to the UK, the wall had fallen. <laughs> and uh, she waited 24, no, not 24 hours, of course, she was in East Germany, uh, West Germany for two weeks. But uh, if she waited another fortnight, she could have just walked across the border. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. There's there's quite quite a an irony in that but it must have been pretty amazing for her to you know arrive back i mean when when was the last time you'd seen her prior to then uh probably a year, a year before i'd have thought right at, at, okay. least a year, at least a year before yeah 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 no a, a, a fascinating story and it, it's nice to hear sort of you know the an, another viewpoint of it because it is a it is a a lovely story of of the Cold War, whereas often many of my stories are rather uh, depressing, or they can be depressing yeah. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, I, I have to hands up, maybe just because I was young and naive, I don't know. I thoroughly enjoyed visiting all of the countries, and I don't remember having a bad experience with any people. I never felt unsafe, ever. It, walking around any of these places, I mean Moscow, a massive city. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel safe walking around there now. Um, but at the time, completely 
I felt completely and utterly safe in every place I went, and the people were, were terrific. Um, I say it might be youth and naivety, but it was a, just a great place to visit. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Special thanks to Jeffrey Jones and Nicholas Butter who are supporting us with $30 per month. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.